So last summer, during the pastor's conference we put together with George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon, I recorded a workshop, and I've been very eager to share it with you. It's a talk by James Catford, our friend from Renovare, Britain, and Ireland, and it happens to be fitting this month's theme of service. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Podcast. I visit China two times every year because I serve as vice chairman of the Amity Printing Company, which is based here. And the Amity Printing Company is the world's biggest publisher of a scripture, believe it or not. Most of the Bibles in the world, more Bibles come out of China than anywhere else. And I know there's a whole story. I won't, I mean, I'll tell you about that. But the reason I'm telling you all this is because um, I was visiting China on one of my visits, and I sat with three academics. We were having a big thing at their top university in China, is in Beijing. I mean, it is the top academic institution. And I was sitting with three academics, none of whom are Christians. I asked them, as I often do, I said, you know, how's religion going? How is faith going in China? I know the answer, but I just asked them. These are three secular academics, world class. And I say, how is it in China? What's actually going on here? Is religion expanding? Oh, yes, religion is expanding in China. I said, really? And I go, which religion? Knowing that they're going to say Christianity, but just to hear them say it. Um, now, actually, that is true. If one in ten of the people in China are not Christians at the moment, they soon will be. One in ten. We're getting towards that. Now, the official figures are um, way under that. But unofficial figures that you, you know, are very close. And I think it, anecdotally, I don't think it is quite there yet. But it's getting there. A generation, in one generation. Anyway, mustn't do my China talk now. But the point is, why has it expanded? Why is the church growing so fast in China? Because you can't preach on um, um, her streets because you're not allowed to. Um, they have an official church, a government registered church. It's not easy. Why is the church expanding? So I asked these academics this, what, why? Th three things they came up with. One, you touch the hearts of people. There's something in this Christian faith that touches hearts. I thought that's really interesting. This is the you know, first of these you know, wonderful people. Said, so I think it's the heart. You somehow seem to touch the heart. But well done you. That's a lot better than some of the secular commentators in my context would understand. Number two, you care for the people on the edges of the culture. You care for the people that no one else cares for, the unemployed, the psychiatrically ill, the orphans. The, you know. I thought, well done you. They're recognizing the social capital. So you can see why I'm telling you this, because of service. And the third, which you won't have thought of, I expect, because I haven't thought about it, is Christianity is an alternative to the arbitrary power in our country. 
arbitrary power. Now, I think that applies not just in China, but in a lot of places. Arbitrary power is this. You're selling peanuts on a stand, on a street. That's all you do. You have a little aluminium thing with a heater, and you fry up peanuts, and you put them in a bag and sell. That's it. You have to support your wife, your, your single child, because of one child, your parents off this one stand. And an official comes along and says, move. And you go, well, this is my month. This is no, no, move. Just a junior official says, just, just go. We don't want you on this coin. Well, this is my livelihood. I don't care. Just go. No, well, who do I appeal to? I don't care. You, you can't. Just move. Or we want to build a highway through your village. Just move. We've given you a, a house hundreds of miles away. But this is my community. My no, go. That's arbitrary power, which, as you know, in our culture, any sense of arbitrary, we're down on it as fast as we can. We think it's outrageous. They have it all the time. And the church stands as an alternative arbitrary power. What it means is, in a communist, the culture is there's no word for the individual in Chinese, really. There's, there, there is no word. And yet we come along and say, Jesus, he died for you. You think how incredibly powerful that is. And that is service, you see. That is on-the-ground service as an alternative to arbitrary power. So that's a form of service, the care of the elderly, the psychiatrically ill. People want in. They know that as an elderly person, you want to be in the church that the homes for the elderly, because they care for you as an individual. That's service. It's a different type to the heavy-handed um, uh, state. So I just thought you'd be interested in that, and that's an illustration of service, I think. <coughs> How, you know, I mean, their music is not fantastic in the Chinese church, I have to say. You know, they play a really teeny little organ, you know, and they're singing hymns that we don't sing anymore because they've only got the hymns that were around before the Cultural Revolution. It's not good, you know, it's not easy, but somehow the Lord is working in China. And it's, a big part of it is about this issue of being a servant. So the chapter we're looking at is um, in celebration. It's on service. Richard says, as the cross is a sign of submission, so the towel is a sign of service, which I think is a lovely way of putting it. And Richard then goes on, the spiritual authority of Jesus is an authority not found in position or title, but a towel. The spiritual authority of Jesus is an authority not found in a position or title, but in a towel, which is a very interesting way of understanding Jesus, because if we are supposed to be like Jesus, which is the whole premise of the book, it's only in the towel stuff that we can do because we're not God. You know, this God, man, Jesus was God, Jesus was man. If Jesus was always playing the I'm God card, then 
what can we do? Because we aren't God. How can we follow him, be imitators of him, become like Jesus? If he's, if it's God, it's the man Jesus. It's the you know towel Jesus that 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 we can follow. In his chapter, he brings together Jesus's response to his disciples' question. And don't tell me we haven't all said this. The question is in Luke chapter 9. The question comes and it cuts through to all of us. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? I mean, that was a driver for me in my early adult life with my stuff. Great, got to be the greatest, got to be the best. You know, got to do well at school, do well in your career. You're in your car, you come up to um, your stoplights, and you're judging the two lanes in front of you. There's a car in each lane. Which lane shall I go in? Because we all know the rule is to get away first. I mean, isn't that the whole base? You know, you've got to get away first. So we're judging the age of the car, age of the driver, the gender, perhaps. You know, I mean, this is what, 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 what people do because the rule is you've got to get away first. Where did that come from? You've got to be the greatest. So they're just acting out what their culture was saying to them. We've got to find out this. Then Jesus, and then Richard then combines that piece with the foot washing in John 13, verses 14 and 15. We've just seen a hand-washing experience there. And he combines that with Matthew 20, verse 25 onwards, where Jesus says, I came to serve, not to be served. This extraordinary upside-down kingdom. I mean, the, the kingdom is so upside-down. We all know that expression. What's up is down. What down is up. That's the basic definition of this. What's up is down. What you gain, you have to lose. What you lose, God brings back and redeems. I mean, that has to be the kingdom, isn't it? It's so counter. The, to serve, not to be served. I mean, it's, it's totally outrageous, really. Um, and um, very hard to understand. Now, we are, I'm sure, familiar with the, those stories and those parts of your know, scripture. Three killer bits of scripture. Who is the greatest example of foot washing and to serve, not to be served? Now, you're a pastor, you're a preacher, you're a leader of a church, you are in the pulpit. We are perhaps familiar with those passages and the stories that open this um, 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 in a chapter, you probably preached on this stuff. You know, I've come to serve, not to serve. You know, I've come to, um, I'm trying going to wash your feet, everything else. And I have a question for you. In fact, I have two. Who of us, here's the first one, who of us as pastors with this cocktail of verses it's not just one, it's all three. This cocktail of verses would not have used them to make the case for service, 
serve more, serve more. Come on, you lot, serve, you know, and preferably the church. Because as the pastor, we need some jobs doing round here. I mean, you've got these three wonderful verses, like a, like a, um, a great canon. We swing these verses round, we take aim at our congregation, and boom, off we go. We just appeal for service. Come and help. We've got children's ministry. We're trying to do meals for elderly. With the, the, the chancellor needs the coat of paint, whatever it is. Serve, serve, serve. What's surprising is that Richard, in his chapter, doesn't list out the reasons to engage in service as compared to non-service. That's where I would have gone. Take these one thousand and just, you know, charge. Come on, let's get going. No, he doesn't. That's surprising to me. Given all that many things need to be done in our churches, we might be forgiven for standing in front of our congregations and making the case for more service. And we've all done that with the emails we have that haven't been answered and the jobs that need to be done. But Richard doesn't compare service to non-service. What does he do? He compares um, um, service to self-righteous service. It's a very interesting. I wouldn't have gone there. He compares service to self-righteous service. Why? These verses are locked and loaded for us in our congregations. We need more volunteers. We want to make more impact in our communities. We need to fix the roof of the church. Why does Richard compare service to righteous service, to unrighteous service, rather than to non-service? Here are the nine things he's talking about. He's saying, don't go for self-righteous service that involves frantic, feverish activity. He's saying, don't do that. He's saying, reject self-serving service with the big deal. Because we all know the big deal is the little deal. The little deal is always the big deal. He's saying, be wary of self-righteous service that looks for external rewards. He says, avoid seeking service that's looking for results understanding. We're all part of that. The, the, our ideas in these days are results. He's saying, don't go for self-righteous service that determines who's going to get the blessing. I'm going to pick you, not you. That's self-righteous serving. That's a discriminatory. I don't mean we don't have to make choices, but you can see what I'm saying here. He's saying, reject self-righteous service that depends on our, how we feel, the mood we're in. You know, so often self-righteous service, I don't think I want to do that today. I think I won't bother. That's, that's what he calls self-righteous. Or self-righteous service is very temporary. He's saying, be wary of self-righteous service that is very short-term. Or self-righteous service that's insensitive. How many people have experienced insensitive service? Well, I don't care what you're feeling. I'm doing this because it's good for me. I want to be seen to be doing good. Everybody wants to be good. Have you worked that out? Everybody wants to be good. 
we'll often do bad things, but we've always got a good reason for doing them. Do you see my point? Everybody wants to be good, and the service, this service issue, gets all scrambled up in that because we want to be seen to be good. So the fact that it might not be quite what you need, I've got to serve you, and we put it on people. But sensitivity is what we're talking about here. There is service that will fracture a community rather than building it. And self-righteous service doesn't really care about that if it splits up a church. Why do you think Richard was so interested in self-righteous service? Another story that Jesus has um, an experience, rather, is the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew 14, 13 onwards. And Jesus was in this place on his own, desolate, away from everybody, but the crowds came to him. You, you, you know this um, story. It's been a long day. It's now evening, and it was an event organizer's nightmare. (laughs) Imagine it, event management. And the health and safety issues were were just being ignored every which way. But the disciples then say, well, send them away. For goodness sake, we're going to have a problem on our hands. They've got to go away and get some food. And Jesus has these words which have been very profound to me over the years. He simply says, no, you feed them. I don't know where that penetrates you, but it always has penetrated me. No, James, you feed them. You give them what they need. You serve them. So so then they take the five loaves and the two fishes, and of course then um, Jesus, he looks up to heaven, which of course in Willard's, understanding Dallas Willard is saying if you're praying look sort of slightly up where we all look down some people look like he says look up because that's when Jesus wasn't here on the earth anymore he left looking about there he reckons so they were looking for him to come back and so his recommendation is you look up so um um, you know, Jesus, he looks up to, he blesses the food, he breaks them, gives them to the disciples who give them to the crowd, and baskets are left over, uh, 12 of them. 5,000 guys and women, you know, plus the women and children. Big group. Question. Jesus said, you feed them. Question. Who fed them? It's one of those sort of clever games you can play. Jesus says, you feed them. Then he does all of this. So the question I'm asking is, who fed them? The I suggest a little boy who gave lunch. There you go. And yet, also, I mean, I think absolutely, and also, who fed them? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus fed them. So, yes, and yes. It's this blending, isn't it? It's this, exactly, it's this together, as Dallas Willard says, you know, prayer is communication with God about what we're doing together. It's a lovely expression, that. Prayer is communication with God. It may not even be words, actually. 
It's communication with God about what we're doing together. And there's this beautiful example of the togetherness. I just think it's rather you know, interesting. He says, you feed them, and then he feeds them. But of course, they've fed him, and the boys fed them, and the disciples have fed them. So we're all in this helping each other out. And service is about that, isn't it? You feed them, he feeds them, that the boy feeds them. Is this what Richard meant when he said, we must see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant? And I wonder what he means by that is choosing to serve. You know, I do these things for myself and being a servant. Is this what Richard meant by what a servant is? A servant of God is someone who's doing God's work with God. I don't know whether that's something that you know, has um, you know, struck you. Because there is a big difference between choosing to serve and being a servant. Why? Because the being a servant is about who we are. It's about the attitude of the heart. The whole point of Richard's book is that we become a servant through practice and discipline. That's the disciplines he's talking about. Others have seen the value of practices, and that's why I put on the second half of this handout this wonderful extract from Dr. Martin Luther King. I don't know if you've come across this, but it's a remarkable um, example of practice, <laughs> practice to become a servant, running classes in our congregations of how to become a servant. And he talks about this in any non-violent campaign, there are four basic um, steps. The collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are alive, two, negotiation, often we're not good on that, three, self-purification, and four, direct action. We have gone through all of these steps in Birmingham, brackets, um, the, the states, because we have Birmingham in Britain as well. There can be no gainsaying of the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. So there's no argument there. And then he goes on. We were not unmindful of the difficulties involved, so we decided to go through a process of self purification. We started to have workshops on the way to not have violence, repeatedly asked ourselves the question, are you able to accept blows without retaliation? Are you able to endure the ordeals of jail? Now, we hope that we won't be in that position of having blows against us or being in jail. But in service, there's a price. There's a price. And I wondered if in communities of love, which is what the church is supposed to be, a community of love, we can actually help each other in that to practice servanthood. Rather than just have a list of roles, would you sign up for all these different um, you know, jobs? We actually say, this is about our formation. Would you like to have formation in Christ? I should think a lot of hands will go up. Well, in that case, could you just sign here, please? <laughs> because if we see our service as part of our 
following Christ, becoming more like Christ, people may actually say, I'm up for that. I don't really want to do that job, but I think I want to be more like Jesus. I just wonder whether there's something there for us to connect our job. You know, we do our sermon over here. We talk about God and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and wonderful everything else. And then we say, right, now the notices, the announcements. We need a volunteer for this, a volunteer for this, and a volunteer for this. And if we could more intentionally as pastors connect those two together, it all becomes part of the whole, which is what this book is. It's all part of the whole. It's what um, you know, Streams Living Water is about, all part of the whole, all about our formation and our service of you know, others. He lists lots of issues there about you know, hiddenness, um, embracing small things, not just big things, guarding the uh, reputation of others, the tongue, the ability, as we did, of not just serving, but of being served. Some of us need to learn the you know, practice of being served. Um, hospitality, courtesy towards others, listening to people, bearing the burdens of others and sharing Christ. The question is, how can we serve more? And he ends his chapter with a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, as it would please you, bring me someone today who I can serve. Why? Not because you're going to have energy taken out of you, but because this is an opportunity to become more in the image of Jesus. Well, there you have it. Hey, I wanted to mention to you the Renovari Book Club is up and going, and apparently it's not too late to join. The address is renovare.org slash book club. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.